Hey there. This is Nick and Ben. Howdy. Hello, Ben. With uh, Milwaukee Logic. Today we're going to have a general Milwaukee discussion. Talk about what our perception of others' perception of Milwaukee is. Kind of what's going on downtown and the rest of the city. Talk a little bit about the culture of Milwaukee. We figured on Milwaukee Logic we should have a Milwaukee podcast. Uh, at least it makes sense. At least one. I mean, we, we, we always talk about Milwaukee and Wisconsin, but I felt like, or we felt like there's got to be one where we just really get down to the nitty gritty of Milwaukee. For sure. I think it all starts with like the culture of Milwaukee. And you can't talk about the culture of Milwaukee without talking about just drinking and having fun and yeah. being kind of crude and definitely a, a different kind of personality in the rest of the state. Like one thing, like before we started, Ben mentioned there's a difference between Milwaukee and Madison. And you just moved back here from Madison, right? Yeah, so I'm originally from Madison. Okay. Uh, I lived there until I was 18, moved to Milwaukee for college, and then moved back to Madison after being in Milwaukee for like, I don't know, six, seven years for a year or two in Madison, and then back to Milwaukee uh, about a year ago. So I am well-versed in both Madison and Milwaukee. <laughs> so, I mean, really, you more than, obviously more than me, can speak to the differences between the two cities and just the, the people. They're very, very different cities. Madison's weird. I go back and forth on my feelings of Madison. It's it's a very big bubble city. I, I mean, I love Madison. It's a great uh, it's a great city for the most part. I mean, it's it's clean. It's generally safe. It's got good schools. I mean, it's it's a it's a good city. But there is a weird thing about Madison, where Madison is it really is a bubble. I mean, they they are a pompous bunch. And I'm saying that someone <laughs> who's from there went to high school there. My parents still live there. Um, I don't even know if pompous is the right word, but it is. It's Madison. not like Chicago is pompous. Chicago is pompous. Yeah. Well, it's weird. Okay, so Madison is a is a education and politics city because they have the university and they're the state capital. So it's a really intellectual group or city. Uh, and I don't really know how to describe it, but. Madison just really, really cares about Madison. That's a good thing. That's a fine thing. But I don't think that they're often aware of the reality. I think it's a very ideological city, and I, I think that they're sometimes uh, not rational about how, how the real world is. And also, I just think that sometimes they think that we're like, oh, we're so progressive or something, when there's there are still serious, serious problems in Madison, and they just don't, they don't address them. Like, there's still very big racial issues in Madison. There's issues with the university. There's a lot of issues in Madison, and they don't like to talk about those, even though they're real things. They don't like to address that they exist? Yeah. I mean, is there... I didn't realize that there's that much of a minority population in Madison. Well, there's like, not. Whenever I'm there, it seems pretty... There's not. Really that, white. That's the problem. I mean, the problem is that they have a major Big Ten university. I mean... UW-Madison is one of the biggest universities in the, in the country. I mean, it's, it's a, as far as endowment, as far as, you know, reputation, all that stuff. And there is a lot of articles about there about how there's, you know, people of color and people of different backgrounds don't feel comfortable there. They, they think 
it's a very, very white community. There's racial issues. And I think most people in Madison, when they think about Madison, they're like, oh, we're so liberal. We're so progressive. Like, we would never... There's no way Madison's a racist town. And I don't think it's an overtly racist town, but I think it's... This is what like what I'm trying to say about Madison, is that they think they're, like, so good when they have serious issues and they just kind of admit or choose to ignore it or something like that. Like, do you remember a couple of years ago that story about, like, when Madison photoshopped the black guy in the UW-Madison brochure? Yeah. That it made national news? I remember news? something about that, yeah. It was hilarious. I mean, it was terrible, but it was hilarious. They, like, they took a picture, and you can pull it up on, on Google. I mean, it's so bad. Like, it's just, it's, it's, it's like these people cheering at a basketball game, and then there's this really weird Photoshop black guy just in the back, background, like, half his head. And you look at it, and it just looks off. You're like, what the fuck? And if you really look at it, you're like, that is the most obvious Photoshop. And it was like a mailer for like a recruiting thing that they sent out to like tens of thousands of people. It would have been better if it was just Jordan crying. Yeah. It would have been at least funny then. Yeah. But obviously, like, there was someone that was like, we need a black guy in this thing. So they decided that instead of actually getting a black guy to... Being a photo, or yeah, like getting a better photo, they just said, "Oh, we'll just like that's the type of thing where it's like arrogance to the point of just being ridiculous. Like they just think, oh, we can just you know Photoshop a guy and it'll be fine." I mean, my perception as someone who's never lived in Madison, my perception of them, I mean, as a conservative who lives in Milwaukee and we have lots of minorities, like we don't have to like think about these things, like. We're all mixed up. I live in River West. It's a very integrated community. I think of Madison as being very in love with the idea of multiculturalism and diversity, but it never really has to deal with it. Well, that's what I love about Milwaukee. That's something when I came here, I've really come... So there are definitely bigger racial issues, at least out in the open in Milwaukee, but that's because they have to deal with them because there is a bigger minority population. It's it's more out there in the open. Now, I think it's healthier in the sense that it is being addressed. Like, I think Milwaukee is it's impressive to me that I think Milwaukee as a whole, generally, overall, obviously there's populations of terrible racists in Milwaukee, blah, blah, blah. There's a lot of, I'm not saying that there's no problem, but it's at least, I think it's an issue that I think people care about. It's, you know, like, it's being addressed in some capacity, like, I do believe that there is a, the fact that it's, and I might not be articulating this right, but like, I feel like they do a better job of Madison of admitting there's a problem and what do we need to do to fix it? And that's what I love about Milwaukee. Well, we don't have the, we don't even have the opportunity to lie to ourselves. Yeah. But I mean, so. It's like saying you're not really at a baseball game when you're getting hit in the head with a bat. But this is like, so I know it's supposed to be a Milwaukee centric one and all we've done is talk about Madison and I'm about to go global here but I do this is my example of I hate when America is always considered such a racist country and it is there's incredible racism in in the United States but comparatively uh, first off we have 360 million people or whatever it is there's going to be a lot of terrible people and like I'm sorry that just happens not Mm -hmm. saying it's okay but it, it is something that happens but also, it's because we have such a diverse population. Like, there's a lot of countries that don't have racism because they don't have other races. You know what They're I mean? They're very homogenous societies. Yeah, it's really hard to be racist when everyone's the same race. 
Well, you look at Scandinavian countries, and they are very homogenous, but they're also extremely racist. Yeah. I mean, to this day, you'll see caricatures, like black caricatures, that used to be common, you know, here in the 30s and further back than that. But somebody would are still point, common now. But someone would point to them and be like, yeah, but look at it. They have no hate crimes there. They have no, like, and it's like, yeah, they can't commit hate crimes because there's no black people there. I mean, I know that sounds really fucked up, but that's like a, a real statement. Like, mm-hmm. I remember reading something about in Europe, there was a soccer game where an Afri- te- African team came and they were, like, throwing bananas at them. Yes. Yeah, that? that happened. Yes, yeah. if that happened in America, that would be like a national travesty. Like, oh, or Britain or France. Oh, well, it was. I think it was in Eastern Europe where it happened. And if that happened in America, that would be like the. It would be addressed by the president. I mean, like we would have like a day of like. It would be a story of like what the fuck, America? Like, what are we doing? That's the worst thing we've done in a long time, just socially. And over there, it was funny or whatever, and it was kind of like accepted. Mm-hmm. And, of course, like, I'm not trying to take down how much racism there is in America, but it's also, to me, and obviously I probably can't do a great job talking to some of this because I'm just a, you know, white dude or whatever, but, like, I feel like we've come an incredible way, and sometimes I feel like that gets overlooked. And I just, I think Milwaukee's a great example of a city that is a strong community that works on its issues. And I feel like America generally has done a good job of that. Obviously, some places better than others. I think Milwaukee's one of the better cities of it. That's my long spieled rant of that. So you feel that the situation in Milwaukee is improving? Generally speaking. Again, when I talk about these things, when I say generally speaking, I'm not dismissing that there's still a lot of crime. Mm-hmm. Because I know that. I know that there's a lot of crime. But... I just, when I look at, like, mass numbers and, like, the overall feel of what I see, I think it's definitely improving. Would you disagree that it's... So when you think about Milwaukee, because I I wanted to ask you this, like, do you see it as a city getting better or a city getting worse or just kind of, like, stagnant? Well, there's been ups and downs. I mean... It was a strong community, and it was strengthening for a long time, and then... What what time period are you talking about? Probably like the first half of the, like the 20th century and the post-war period, and it's like in the 60s, like, you're, we're talking about, uh, I think Ziegler before, um, like right around the 60s and 70s, Milwaukee had a very, Wisconsin in general, but had a very, very... Um, shall I say progressive um, public assistance programs compared to other states and cities, especially compared to ones in the South. And like that's a time where a lot of our minority population moved into the area and a lot of the people that moved in didn't necessarily have any skills. And it's at the same time period when manufacturing in the area started to wane a little bit. And it kind of created this situation where, well, now you have all these people living here that are, they don't have enough skills to go for more advanced jobs or to maybe start their own businesses. And the amount of manufacturing jobs is decreasing. So the people that were doing these jobs, a good amount of them are finding themselves out of work anyway and having to find new careers and whatnot. 
And it kind of it hit this critical mass where you have entire sections of the of the city where people are work or living and not working, and they have children and they grow up with that with, you know that being their example. And we have a school system and it tries to educate people and people go to the school and have no intention of learning. So from my perspective, it doesn't really matter what the school system does at that point. And then they drag down the other kids that do want to learn. And we have this, not just perpetuating, but this deepening cycle in certain sections of the city. And then at the same time, downtown, you have this, this building boom and all this new housing and construction. And you, you end up like this reverse donut where everything is moved into like what would have been a donut hole downtown and surrounding it. It's almost like we have this war-torn, desolate wasteland. And then outside of that, then there's opportunity and expansion and things are happening again. So you're saying it's like a dartboard almost. Like it's like... Yeah. Oh, yes, absolutely. It does. It ends up being like that. And we talk about Milwaukee being um, the most segregated city or whatever. And I took an Africology class and I listened to all the stuff about steering and whatnot. But I also know people that are from those areas and when they get to a certain point in their life where they could move out no one's telling them they can't a lot of a lot of people just stay because that's what they've known and that's where their families live and well there's pressure to not leave so i mean it's it's self-segregation to me yeah but i mean i mean a lot of that is i mean sociologically I, I get what you're saying. Well, first off, I, I got to say that the segregation stuff goes back since the beginning of Milwaukee. I mean, mm -hmm. the the Polish, the Italians, the Germans, they were very... They all have their own communities. Yeah, and that's the framework, you know, the grid work. This Milwaukee is a grid system, generally speaking. And, mm -hmm. you know, Milwaukee forever has been... Milwaukee is a very strange city where you can be in one neighborhood and then you go two blocks over and it's a completely different neighborhood. Yeah. And regardless of whatever race or minor or religious group or whatever we're talking about, Milwaukee's always had that weird dynamic where it's been like that mm -hmm. since the Polish, the Germans, you know, a lot of Europeans moved back there. And that's also why when you're talking about Seidel and stuff and having a socialist mayor and having a, a socialism being generally kind of um, accepted in Milwaukee, it's because of the huge... Uh, European communities, the Germans, yeah. the Polish, and all that. Yeah, people moved here where that's what they were used to. Mm -hmm. we were very... They were first-generation immigrants that came here, and they moved into areas where people from their country were around them and have the same culture, and it was never integrated particularly. No. It was always like, it's one thing that's interesting to me when you talk to somebody who's like really old, they gotta be like in their 80s, but from Milwaukee, you know, tell them, you know, tell them where I live. I'm like, oh, I used to be a Polish neighborhood. <laughs> it was all Polish. <laughs> and you know, I talk about this other house that's six blocks away. And like, oh, it was all Puerto Ricans over there. You know, it was garbage and you know, whatever. And, and then you're like, oh, I live, you know, over by the Jewish community at, you know, 40th and whatever. And it's like, what are you, like, They what? had their own section. They did. Yeah. And they just, they just glob together. Yeah. And it's bizarre, like, growing up in the era that we grew, era that we grew up, and like our experience to think that people would even feel a need to do that is just so bizarre. Yeah. Well, I, that's 
part of the you know the progress that I'm talking about though. Like you would never do that now. Like there, like there are areas I could think about where I'm like, you know, there is certain areas in Milwaukee where I'm like, yeah, there's a pretty heavy Hispanic population there. There's a pretty big African American population, whatever. Like there still is segments of Milwaukee, you know, different blobs or whatever. But I'd never be like, oh, that's a that's a Puerto Rican neighborhood or something like that. Like you're talking now, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's. I mean, it's it's still it's still heavily segregated. There's just fewer there's fewer groups and they're larger groups yeah but they're like as concentrated as they used to be before whereas before there could have been 15 different groups all divided up now there's like three there's the south side there's the north side and then there's the white population hovering on the east side and then brady to downtown and then well, what so portions here and there? I kind of want to get into, it, and I don't know if you have an answer for it, but what do you think is a solution? Because I mean, you were talking about a lot of people during the very progressive era, era of the '70s and stuff when all these people were moving in that you said didn't have skills and stuff. I mean, there's a very, you know, logical reason. I mean, a lot of them were coming from poverty from the South or something. Yeah, they like were that. in poverty to begin with. I yeah, mean, they, they didn't have education or something like that. I mean, like that's a real. It's, it's not like, oh, they didn't, you know, they didn't want to learn a skill or something like that. There's a very valid reason they're coming from post-slave era, you know, south or something like that, growing up in pure poverty. Like, that's, you just have that absolute disadvantage of the likely, like, the statistical probability of getting education. Well, if they had, if they had skills, they wouldn't have needed to come here in the first place. They didn't have skills, couldn't find employment, and so they were able to take advantage of better social services here. So once enough people know about that, word spreads, and a lot of people are moving here, and and the the whole area demographics change pretty dramatically. And it's, I mean, I don't really know that there's a solution for it. I think. I don't know if there's an easy solution for it or the one answer solution. I mean, when you talk about these, you know, you were talking about the problem was that people were coming in here without skills or education or something like that. I mean, I think you, and obviously this is a very vague answer, but that's what you need to improve is the education, which is the public school system. Now that's really fucking easy to say versus actually fixing it. But I, I think that that's the number one first step. In my opinion, I always think education is probably the, the the seed that, you know. No, I think it goes further back. I mean, I think a, by and large, a school system is going to be defined by the students in the school system. You can have great teachers that are trying their little hearts out, but you give them a bunch of kids that don't want to learn, they're not going to get anywhere. They're going to be at a different school system 10 years later or just get burned out. I mean, that's kind of a, that's a cycle, though. I mean... It's, it's not... Yeah, it's self-perpetuating. Yeah, I mean, that's a chicken or egg situation. I mean, I, get, I, I totally know what you're saying, that it's not, I'm not saying that there's not kids out there that are just problem children and they're hurting schools and stuff, but that's not, like, an excuse on the school district. I mean, if you go to some of those schools, the really bad ones, the really tough public schools or whatever, they have terrible funding, they don't have, you know... Uh, proper equipment, materials, they don't, I mean, they don't have a lot of advantages. And well, I mean, Milwaukee school system spends about $15,000 a year per student. 
they have plenty of money, even compared to other. Our property taxes are higher than, you know, than, like for instance, I I work with people whose home values are almost double mine, and my property taxes are higher than theirs. Um, a huge amount of money gets moved from the rest of the state and state funding and sent to Milwaukee. Like. The problem is not a lack of money. They have plenty of money. Well, uh, and I don't. They're know drowning in administration. They're drowning it in administration. No, they're drowning in administration. They spend a pretty inordinate amount of money administering their failing school systems and not getting anywhere. I was going to say I, I would be curious. You know, you can get all the money in the world if you're not spending it correctly. I don't know what they're spending it on and stuff, but I don't know. It's definitely not a, a one. An easy fix. I mean, if you want to improve the schools, and this is kind of grim, when you're just throwing everyone together, like let's say you have two thirds of the students are willing and able or or want to learn, and a third of them have no intention of learning. And for those kids, it doesn't matter what teachers in front of them like they're they can talk about inspiring them all they want, but they're just they aren't gonna care. You can't inspire someone who's not listening to you. So you're just saying give up on them? Well, if we keep them all together, those kids tend to drag down everyone else. And when you allow people to escape that situation and go to a, and go to a different school, talking about like choice schools, they're able to do function much, much better and stay focused and actually are able to maximize their potential. And that's a real tragedy to me. Like kids that are just dumb uh, you can throw all kinds of money at them and teachers, and they're still going to be dumb. And and then on top of that, they don't want to learn. I'm not going to shed many tears when they don't get anywhere in life because they were never going to. They they had just their potential was on the floor. But when when all the other kids that their potential could be quite lofty, they they have the intelligence there to perhaps become a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer, another teacher, or whatever, and be quite good, and they ended up in that potential that, that human value gets wasted. Well, also, it doesn't even need to be a doctor, an engineer, or something like that. Well, yeah, those are just examples. No, no, I know that, but I'm, I'm saying one thing that I think, and this isn't just Milwaukee, this is America in general, is I don't, I don't like the educational framework of basically being like, okay, you, you got to get these grades you got to get a good enough gpa in high school then you got to go to college and then you got to go to this or whatever like there are some i mean trade schools are a really great option for some people like mm -hmm. i'm not a i'm not a mathematical guy like i never had nobody ever once told me about like like i have a buddy who's a plumber and he went and did an apprenticeship and whatever he didn't go to college but he went and got, yeah. like he learned a trade and he's doing well you know like mm -hmm. he knows he knows a, a functional skill and like i i do there are programs out there. Uh, I mean, I work with one of my clients that I work with is the Milwaukee Job Corps. I mean, there are things out there, but they're very difficult. They, they're underfunded. They're, you know, they have issues of their own. Oh, the biggest problem they have is lack of interest in students. Not in like, not this, not like we were talking about before, not the lack of interest in students in it, but students that should be doing that where they could maximize their potential by doing that sort of thing they look down their noses at that sort of a thing when that's a perfect opportunity for them. There's someone who doesn't have, you know, they don't have the brains to go to med school, but they could be a great electrician and they could make a really good living at it. 
and an honest living. And instead, they go to a four-year college. They can't figure out where they fit. They end up doing art history or something. They graduate, and then they can't find a job. And now, so now they're equally unemployable as when they started, but now they have a lot of student debt. Yeah. And then, who are they going to vote for forever? They become, you become an economic slave. Like, you're, you're, a, you're a debt slave for the rest of your life. You have essentially lost your freedom forever by wasting your potential and trying to do something that you never should have done. Something that I say all the time that one of the biggest tragedies in this country is that we tell kids coming uh, all growing up, especially finishing high school, we tell them three things. You can do whatever you want, you can be whatever you want, and you can have whatever you want. This is America. And if you separate out those out, you generally get to pick one. You can either be whatever you want, but you're going to have to do whatever it takes to be that thing. And what you have is going to be a result of those other two factors. Or you do whatever you want, in which case, if what you want doesn't involve much effort, you probably aren't going to be, you know, you're probably not going to be much. You're not going to have anything. But if what just not, if just what you're doing is important, or you're doing something that is very helpful and makes you happy and it it has value, it just doesn't pay much, it makes you happy, that's fine. If that's the most important thing to you, you just have to reconcile yourself with the fact that you're not going to have a whole lot and you might not you might not be what what you imagine coming out. No, I completely agree with you on that. I hate the... And I'm, I'm part of this generation. Uh, there is a softness of... I don't know how long, I don't know when it started, the, the you can be whatever you want, you can do whatever you want philosophy. I don't know if that was in like the 90s or the 80s or something like that, but that, I don't think that's a good message. Like it's it's a, it's a illogically optimistic. I think it's meant to be inspirational. Yeah. But it's But dangerous. it's not. Yeah. We're lying to kids. It's kind of akin to my whole argument for why dare was a terrible thing, because you're lying to kids. You're telling kids that that all drugs are terrible, weed is the worst thing in the world, alcohol is so terrible, and then, oh, by the way, cocaine and heroin and these other things are really bad too. And what do people do? They drink a beer and they're like, this is kind of cool. And this is not that big of a deal. This is very manageable. They smoke some weed. Kind of cool. Feel a little different. Not a big deal. I'm not chemically addicted overnight. They're They're not suffering from that. And then... The whole thing, everything that they've been told up to that point appears to be a lie. And it's the whole mantra that's been drilled into them, they just assume is wrong. And then it's pretty easy for people to fall into other stuff that is more serious. People are afraid to be honest with kids, I feel like. Like, they don't want to, like, you know, you don't want to, oh, you don't want to crush their dreams by saying, like, that's probably not going to happen or something like that and i and i just feel like that's a softness that's not healthy well the world needs ditch diggers too yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, there's definitely people out there that do that you know i don't know um no i can I, I agree with you on that i think it's important like that's one thing people talk shit about standardized testing because they're like oh well you're just better at being standard i'm like okay well that's a really good comeback for why you suck at testing but they they measure certain aspects of intelligence that are going to be important for certain fields. And if you want to pursue those fields, like you better be quick in these areas. Otherwise 
You might be. I, I you think, might need to look at different things that utilize different sets of skills. I'm fine with that answer, except that standardized tests are viewed as like the only uh, gauge of a person's intelligence. Like, if standardized testing, which well, on the spectrums that they measure, I know, but it's still like. When people take those tests, that's like the only thing that matters and your intelligence is equated to that number. Like if that was one of three different ways that it could be used, you know, like for example, uh, I, I have a friend who's German, he lives in Germany or whatever. And he was telling me about for them in high school, after a couple of years, they kind of get placed in different groups. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, there's the people that are likely going to be like the, the pre-meds, the engineers, the whatever. There's the trade school people or whatever you know like there's the people that might have some trouble with certain things like that and it's not like a stigma between them mm-hmm. um, it's just kind of like what you excel at and they have very different curriculums moving forward and I always thought that was kind of cool because it it people are just so different and so there are people out there who are smart but aren't good at standardized testing but in this country that's the like that's the only metric we have now we have grades well I know we have other things but grades that's what I'm saying. Like, there's a lot of people out there who might not get good grades or whatever like that. That they they don't grades and standardized testing is a dangerous thing if that's the only metric you have because a lot of kids out there, like, they'll be you know if they're let's say they're from they're in a poverty situation or like that maybe they have a bad home life or something like that they don't have the opportunity to do homework or. You know, if they, have to, if they have to care for a sibling because they have a parent that's troubled or gone or something like that, if the only thing they're graded on as for their life is from when they're like, you know, between 9 and 18 is these these numbers that they get from teachers that, I mean, some of these teachers, look, teachers are great and everything like that, but there's also, just like cops, there's there are shitty cops out there, there are shitty teachers out there, like, they're underpaid, there's just... By the like the virtue that there's millions of them, there's going to be shitty ones. There's more great teachers, there's more co- great cops than bad ones. But I'm saying there are bad ones out there. So like these are all kind of arbitrary things. Where if that's your only metric, I think that's a problem because it puts a lot of bad there are a lot of people in bad places where they're limited in their chances to succeed. Well, I mean, I stick to depending on what you're trying to do. Like if you're trying to be a musician. Your standardized test scores are basically meaningless. They don't matter. Because the, the, the ways in which your brain has to be talented are in no way going to be tested by that test. If you're, like I did, going to go into school, like go to engineering school, if you can't do well on a standardized test, you're not going to make it in engineering school. Like, it's just, you need all of those, literally every skill that's being tested, you need all of them. If you don't have them, you don't have them. And like, I think a big part of the testing is how can you handle pressure? That moment that can you, can you deal with test anxiety? Because you're going to be under, when you're working, you're going to be under pressure at different, at different levels of pressure at different times to perform. And you have to rise to those occasions. If you're going to get through school, you're going to have different periods and you have more pressure and you have to be able to control your fear and anxiety and rise to those occasions. So it's, it's like in one little half day, you can test all of these things. I'm, I'm just saying that I think it's something like, okay, so an ACT or an SAT or something like that, that's a standardized test or a form of it. Mm-hmm. That is incredibly important to getting into college. And it 
it's one of the few metrics besides GPA and stuff like that. Like that stands out more than a lot of things. And my issue with it is that it gives it, it's a, it's very advantageous to those who have the time and resources. Like if you have more money, you can get tutored or you have it's a waste of money. Well, okay. You can say that, but there's no freaking way that it's not helpful or something like that to have tutors or to have, Oh, I thought you meant specifically like for those tests. Oh, well, I'm just saying. What just I'm saying in is general? that there is there's okay, a yeah. lot of people out there, like the people that live in very poverty or rough situations. It's very dis. Uh, they have a lot of disadvantages when it comes to things like standardized tests because, I mean, God knows if they're even going to take them. But if they, even if they do. Uh, I just think they have a lot of disadvantages out there. And if that's the focal metric of what they're going to be valued as, as like a up and coming person, because that's kind of like, if you're, if you don't have good grades in high school or you don't get this good, you know, if you don't even take the ACT or SCT or something like that, like to the professional community, you're not even like in an echelon of being looked at for jobs. Mm -hmm. And I know what I know what you're saying is like it's on that person to like do that, but there are just realistic things in life that happen to a lot of people. You know, people that have like bad homes or like I said, poverty or something like that. Like mm -hmm. there there is a lot of people who are very bright people, but they're in or they're you know, they're influenced by the bad community or something like that. Mm -hmm. They just don't have the same chances and it's when you have people having a huge advantage versus a group of people that have a big disadvantage. The people that have the advantage will continually succeed on average, and the people with the disadvantages will continually not be successful, and it just creates a bigger and bigger population of people not succeeding and people succeeding, and that's when like the gaps between the two become bigger and bigger, and I don't think that's a good thing. I think it's a very dangerous way to have a society. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's structurally perpetuates it, and it just, like... Just out of like natural selection, you're like increasing the like the intelligence disparities because once you separate out that way, you have a you have one culture, two cultures that live right next to each other. One of them, you're you're choosing a mate largely off of their intelligence, and then in a society culture right next to it, that's not even a factor. So like you. Not only do the, the actions taken and the focus through the life of, of children to being adults and then to having their own children, are they perpetuating that cycle? It's like that disparity is only going to get worse and grow larger. It's, it's a structural problem. That's, what, that's my biggest issue if, is when people are just blaming a certain community, whether it's a racial community or a religious community or whatever. I look at the very reasonable problems structurally that have held them down. And what I think people often forget, which frustrates me, is that a lot of groups have had huge advantages. For, like, they have these huge head starts, and, and some people have huge, you know, uh, disadvantages from the beginning. So, I mean, it's just like, you can, it's very easy to say, well, you know, you should be, you should, if you're smart enough or talented enough, you can get there or whatever. Like, that's not always the case. It's not always the case. But, like, uh, Ward Connerly um, was, uh, 
He was in admissions at Berkeley, and he's a you know a, a medium to lot big time speaker who does some these small circuits. He gave a speech at UWM. And he, he was speaking and like the the student, the black student counselor, or whatever group was in there, and they were making us think about him being there because he is a black conservative, and that's the biggest sin that you can commit. But he was talking about how, like, that whole theory of you're starting way behind, so, like, and then we're getting into kind of affirmative action. You need to have the scales tilted for you after the die has largely already been cast on, like, on your your personal improvement. And, and like, just being, you know, starting out way behind everyone else and not having that white privilege. And they, you know, they made all the, the usual points like, oh, if it's a baseball game, if, if we're starting out a home plate and, you know, you know, in the batter's box trying to make a hit and the people that we're competing with are just starting standing out on second base or whatnot, they continually brought up the point that in their admissions structure, because in their admissions, obviously, you, like a white student had to perform at a certain level to have a chance of getting admitted and a black student who performed much, much, much lower could get in, and then they had to be treated differently while in the school to get the, the graduation rates to be similar. Because once they started packing minorities into the school, then they weren't graduating, they were getting failed out, and they had to deal with that. And the other thing that they were doing is second-generation Vietnamese immigrants, they had to tilt the scales far more dramatically away from them and make it far more difficult for them to get in than even white students. Because even though their parents came here, didn't know the language, didn't, for the most part, didn't have a marketable skill that they could just immediately get a job. They came here and they made families. They, they had their own self-segregated community, but they were so focused and almost maniacal in their, in their way of raising children that that first generation raised kids that could academically destroy anyone else, like no matter what race they're coming from, uh, from an indigenous population. Yeah, but a lot of them also didn't have the, and I don't want to dismay the disparities that, you know, Vietnamese culture had, or the, you know, Asian population had in this country, because they're, they're, I know there's a lot, but they don't, they don't have the baggage of being systematically shipped over and oppressed for hundreds of years before having like the systematic I mean like the infrastructure was created around slaves and created a culture that has such a huge disadvantages for African Americans that I feel like I, I know what you're saying and what the guy is saying like on principle this is one of those like idealistic things versus reality things where in theory, communism works, but in reality, that's not how it works. And I feel like when people say, you get what you put in, you uh, you know, you can go as far as you want. And, like, I understand I understand the frustration with stuff like affirmative action and stuff like that. Because there are cases where an underqualified person gets a job that somebody probably, you know, that was more qualified didn't get. I understand the frustrations from both, but it's very, I think, wrong to dismay the just the fundamental realities of how disenfranchised a lot of cultures 
whether it's black or Hispanic or, you know, like there's a lot of cultures out there that just have a infrastructurally uh, disadvantaged starting point. <laughs> and you can't just say, oh, well, work your way out of it because when you have money, so Malcolm Gladwell, did you know that author? He was talking about how money just essentially gets you chances. And I think there's a lot of truth to that because if you're coming from poverty, when you have a screw-up and everyone has screw-ups in their life, you don't have the same chance to bounce back that somebody's well. If you're, if, you're, if you're coming from a rich family and you get strung out on pills for a year, you drop out of college for a year or something like that, you have a chance to rebound a lot easier than somebody who has, you know, uh, no parents or... Uh, is looking out for a bunch of, you know, at 13, they're the ones watching out for their younger siblings or something like that. Like, it's just a very uneven playing field for a lot of people. And that's what I get frustrated well, the, about. The excessive opportunity to screw up tends to not even be an advantage, really. Um, people in that situation, when they screw up repeatedly and get bailed out, uh, if it happens once, you turn around, you make something of yourself, that's, uh, it's, you know, fine. But the highest IQs come out of the middle class. Okay. Um, now, grant, I mean, I grant you, if you have, like, no margin for error, the littlest slip is going to send you into a cycle that you're never going to get yourself out of. That's a big problem. But... I mean, too much money to bail you out is just going to have you make too many mistakes. Um, one thing that's interesting is there's another philosophy that if you could, you could take all the money and just, for the most part, mix it all up or even swap it. And how long would it take before all the money ends up right where it was? Well, lottery winners, like the people that play the lottery the most, are generally people that don't have any money and aren't intelligent enough to really get money. And then when they win hundreds of millions of dollars, the almost comically short period of time it takes before they're out of money again. Um, and my attitude is easy money is always bad. It's just always bad. If you're just born with it and parents are giving you easy money, that's a bad thing. If you win a whole lot of money you didn't have to earn, that's a bad thing. If you're given money by government that you didn't have to earn, repeatedly and over the course of a long time, that's a bad thing. Easy money always damages the people receiving it. I mean, I I agree with you. I mean, the, 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 it, it's, it is comical when you see the lottery winners and stuff like that. But, like, the, I think we're both, as, as always, what I would say is it's somewhere in the middle where it's, you can't just give people uh, a head start and expect them to catch up and then it'll be even playing around you need to raise them on, up infrastructurally and then also expect the same out of everyone i get I don't know well the, the the act of raising up is what's perpetuating or what created the cycle that we have now. See, that's that's the shit that I don't I don't like. Well, it's just true. Like you take between it's the not just true. It's not that simple saying it's just true. No, absolutely. I'll demonstrate it right now. So after slavery, between the end of slavery and say like the early nineteen sixties, the the racism encountered by black Americans was much worse than it is now. Like structurally, like infrastructurally and, and whatever and just 
between general people and how they treat each other is much more serious, much more direct, and very overt. And in that environment, the black family was in most regards stronger than the white family. Um, the plight of black Americans was improved dramatically in that time span. And at the same time where we had, and we were just start passing civil rights legislation after shooting down a whole bunch of them in the fifties, but whatever, that's a different discussion. And once we start paying families to no longer be families, then we don't have families anymore. It just, it didn't, it only took like 20 years. And then once there weren't families anymore, once the strength of the black family, which was the backbone of their society, of their culture, once that was taken away, now we have this perpetuating cycle of kids growing up without parents, going to school, not caring. The only example that they have ever seen was living on welfare. The only people that they, the only examples they see of people doing really well are athletes and rappers and gangsters. So now we have that cycle, but we can't lie to ourselves. So now if we say that the solution is just we need to keep raising people up and paying them to be whatever they are, you're just going to get more of the same. Yeah, but you're talking about it like slavery ended and then it was like, okay, sorry about that. Now let's just all work hard and be together. And it's like, that's not erasing what happened, A. B, you're talking about an entire culture that's, after the Civil War and stuff, got freed, and they're just because they're free doesn't mean that they have they're massively living in poverty. They didn't they didn't have anything. They just got free. Now an entire culture is just technically released. I mean that's where like sharecropping and stuff happening yeah. because they had nowhere to go. They had no money, mm-hmm. so they started essentially working for the plantation, which was essentially like no different than what they were. It doing was legalized before. slavery essentially. Yeah. Uh, I mean like. Those are infrastructural things where, like, I understand the... the there was a long process of improvement, yeah. I mean, no, there was a huge long process of improvement, but it's still not over. I mean, there are still shit going on that is anti-minority. I mean, there's stuff in Florida where, like, you can't vote if you're a felon, and they have drug laws where if you get caught with a joint, that's a, you know, criminal offense, and they're, you know, going after an arrest. Like, there is huge data out there about that that law like they're arresting black men and like an incredibly high number to the point of where like it's institutionally that they're trying to reduce the amount of men black men that can vote because if you get busted with a joint you can't vote in florida i'm not saying that all black men have fucking joints down there i'm just saying there's a lot of people saying that you they're going after specifically like any anyone that they can find with one they're like, they're institutionally doing it. And they're skipping over, they're going to communities that they think that they can pull. That's just one example of many. I'm just saying there's a huge institutional thing that is still going on. I think it's gotten a lot better. Obviously, it's improved a shitload. I mean, we, we've gotten to the point where it's not just, you know, rappers, athletes, basketball players. I mean, we have a black president, we have business owners, we have entrepreneurs, we have, you know, uh, philosophical leaders, writers, you know, we have celebrities in every, or, you know, uh, spokespeople in every kind of field and industry. You know, Neil deGrasse Tyson's one of the, probably the most popular scientist in America. He's, he's black. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, 
So we've broke down a lot of doors. Doesn't sound very bad. He doesn't, but he is. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm just so we've gotten like it's really impressive where we've gotten, and I think a lot of that is because of how we've been helping level the playing field. Now I understand what you're saying about like the carrot on the string and like the if you help someone up, they don't have to work as hard, and that can be. It has to be a, a, a no. I, sp- a I specifically. Like helping someone up is fine, but in the specifically in the sense where we started paying families to not be families, and then before long there weren't any families left. That's what did like the utmost damage to black culture and created this cycle. Like, like for instance, when you could, when a mother could get a certain amount of uh, assistance, as if she wasn't married, then. You had people, and this goes all the way back to the 60s, where people started getting divorces so they could get a raise, essentially. Because they, they were eligible for more assistance. And then the laws were changed to kind of, to try to cut out that loophole and be like, well, I mean, you're not married, but, I mean, you live together. The dad's in the home. You're essentially a nuclear family, even though you're not married. So in order to get these extra benefits and additional assistance, the hus- the father, or whichever parent who's getting the assistance, which, whenever somebody has the freedom to run away, it always ends up being the man. So, if you want to talk about legitimate sexism, that's where, that's where a big one sits. The guy was always, the, or usually the one to run away. So then, they get, in order for that money to get paid, then the, the father has to not be in the home. So, guess what? They go live somewhere else, and before long, they're not involved in their children's lives anymore, really, at all. And I liken it to, like, a whole, like, look at a city as just a whole array of candles, and every person is a candle. And they're trying everything they can to, like, their pride, like, makes them want to keep their candle lit. But at some point, they're going to, they stand to gain a lot more by just letting that candle go out and living on assistance. Um, If you have a kid that's sick, you make a little bit too much money to be on Medicaid or whatnot, and you can't afford the drugs. If you just quit your job, you can get your your kid the treatment they want. And like, as you moved into the 70s, and like, again, look at, uh, Milton Friedman had a really good series on this in 1980, he was looking at the situation at the very end of the 70s, where you had people that were in that very situation their family, they, their parents, their grandparents had all worked, always worked, never lived on assistance. But at some point, they're, tr- they're going along well, and they run into some situation where they have to quit, and they have to put their candle out just to, so their kid can survive or something, or something to happen. And that, that candle never gets relit. It's out, it ends up being out forever. And that's the real tragedy, where we, trying to help people, created a situation where after decades of them bucking the system, trying to swim upstream out of just pride and self-worth, eventually gave up. And once they gave up, not only did they give up for themselves, their kids are never going to see that example. Like, their experience is totally different than growing up in a family where your parents or at least your father is working or your mom is home or she's working as well. They love each other. They care about you. Once you take that away, that society is doomed. That culture is doomed. Don't you think some of them gave up because of the institutional stuff that was against them? 
Because they're seeing... Well, if they hadn't done that before, why would they do that then? Like, those things existed before and were much worse. Yeah, but... Yeah. And they fought through that. Again, that was their pride. Their pride was very strong. They're proud of who they were, that they could overcome that. I'm just saying you're you're expecting essentially double of certain populations. Like you're you're talking about the black community, and you're you're basically expecting not only for that like you're you're essentially asking them to be doubly productive and. Well, this isn't just a black problem. So, like, I grew up. It's not just the black. first ten years. There's way out there's in the absolute yeah. middle of white trashville, right? Yeah, there's a shitload of white trash in Wisconsin, and it was like all the same things that we're talking about. They did all those same things. Yeah. They families that have it all worked out, where they'd have eight kids and they'd collect all this money, and the husband would live like his address would basically be the camper next to the house that's dilapidated, but he'd actually live in the house. And then as soon as the oldest kid hits eighteen. You know, if you, if you get pregnant for a ninth time, you don't get any more money once you get to nine, so you get an abortion. And then as soon as the oldest kid hits 18, you make sure that kid's pregnant so that they have a kid and they're still in the household. And you can get... I mean, it's insane. Oh, I mean, yeah, I was just... It's using, all the same I was using, I was using the, the black populace because we had talked about some of the social issues Milwaukee and stuff. the most concentrated. Yeah, but I mean, there's... It's the most obvious. White, black... Uh, it, it's an it's an economic issue. It's not it's not a social. I mean, there is a lot of social aspects to it, mm-hmm. but anyone that's in that cycle of poverty is having a lot of these same problems. I think a big part of it to me is that if you're living that lifestyle, ninety percent of white people, if if you're white and you're living that lifestyle, ninety percent of white people hate you and don't accept you as like basically a human being for doing that. They think you're a piece of shit. And I think the biggest problem with black culture is they just accept it. Yeah, that's fine. Wait, you're saying the problem with white people? I mean, that's part of the... I mean, that's part of, I think, why it's so perpetuated. Because white people do it, and other white people hate them for doing it. So you're saying the black culture should be harsher on those who are, in their own community, not... Not trying Okay, that's interesting. And there are there. I mean, there's there's, and we should get moving on to you know Milwaukee centric a little bit. <laughs> yeah, there are you know there are a lot of black leaders. Yeah, I mean, this is before he the recent. Yes, like, the best example was Bill Cosby, was and now he's Bill totally Cosby. discredited. But let's not discredit what he was for it's a long time. Uh, I'm trying to think of. Uh, I think it was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar said stuff like that. Um, I mean, Martin Luther King, always, that was kind of a, a big staple of his thing, is he always talked about how we need to, you know, rise above and be better and all that stuff. Like, he he put a very strict, you know, sense of responsibility on his community. You know, like, mm-hmm. it was a, it was a discipline-type thing. So, there, I mean, there is, this is not, like, a new thing, but you, I, I, get, I get what you're saying. Um, but... Yeah, we should probably do a little bit. Well, yeah, like coming back to Milwaukee. So, like, my point that we drew in a lot of people, and it wasn't just black people, a lot of people of different races too, into the area at right at a point when our manufacturing was starting to wane and we're starting to lose some jobs. We had a lot more people that were chasing social welfare programs, and you hit a critical mass at some point, like. You can only have a certain amount of unemployment that you can like handle and survive and continue to grow in 
Because at some point, you just hit a critical mass where you have too many people that need jobs in excess of the jobs that can be created in a two or three year span. And then once those people go for three, four, or five years without being able to find a job, like they're basically, their potential has been, has been halved at least. And we hit a critical, like we have more people coming in that we could create jobs. And then we just, then that created a pocket of essentially unemployable people because they went for too long. And then <laughs> they were screwed forever, and that sucks. So let's let's look at uh, all right. I'm trying to think of who I'm picturing the map. What areas do you think of Milwaukee are the biggest problem areas of Milwaukee and the Greater Milwaukee area? What have like different pockets? I mean, like you go up around like 90th and Brown Deer. Obviously, that's like a crazy little pocket. Um, where, I mean, you just look at Northridge, how it just fled. Yeah. I lived on like 76 in Brown Deer and it was very foolish. Shouldn't have done that. Um, and yeah, it was just, it's just wild over there. Like I, I didn't even, I didn't even know that it was like that over there. Um, and then obviously, you know, the North side and you go down, you know, 27th and Locust, it's a lot different than Oakland and Locust, you know? Um, this is where it's hard to say what area because, like we were talking about, Milwaukee is such a weird. There's separate it's pockets. pockets it's yeah. Pockets. I mean, when when we were looking for houses and stuff, it was shocking to me how you'd look at, you know, there'd be certain houses in neighborhoods that weren't great, and then there'd be a pocket of like a two block radius where the, the prices would shoot up, or mm-hmm. vice versa. You know, it'd be a great neighborhood, and then it'd be a pocket where prices shot down. You know, <clears> it was incredible to see that. The difficult thing is that, like, where you can get the most expansion of jobs quickly is to open a new manufacturing plant. Like, retail, there's only so much retail that can be in an area. Um, there's only so many bars. I mean, Milwaukee, we have, like, Milwaukee and Oshkosh and Green Bay and Watertown. We've written a book on saturating the market with yep. bars. Yep. There's only so many restaurants that you can have that you can staff with people before you just you have too many. And you need, you need different jobs available. So the easiest way to create jobs in a, in a particular uh, market is to set up a new manufacturing plan. If you have the investment capital, you can just do it. And your customer could be someone in a different country. Well, this is why I'm optimistic. You so don't need a local customer. This is why I'm optimistic of Milwaukee for a lot of reasons. Because and I'm just going to quickly run over a couple of the things that are coming to Milwaukee. And you can kind of pick which one you want to talk about. What, Ikea? Oh, yeah, I forgot about Ikea coming. Well, whatever. No, uh, so have you heard of the, the Health Highway? Nope. Have you ever heard of Epic Systems? Yeah. So they're out of Madison. The Health Highway has kind of been defined as from Madison to Milwaukee. Uh, Epic kind of started it as they're a health database company, and they are a huge part of the Madison economy. But other companies have moved to the Midwest in that stretch of Madison to Milwaukee, whether it's Oconomowoc, Zaki County, all that stuff. And Milwaukee's definitely part of it. GE Medical is right there. It's there's a huge industry coming, and and Milwaukee and Madison are becoming a hub for that industry. Now there's I've met with a bunch of these people for the Greater Milwaukee Convention for work and stuff like that. Milwaukee is trying to gear itself as a startup city, meaning they're trying to be the Silicon Valley of the Midwest. Mm-hmm. With the Buck Stadium coming in, with the streetcar coming in, 
there is a there's a nonprofit organization called Startup Milwaukee uh, that works hand in hand with GMC, which is the Greater Milwaukee Convention, and their goals are to promote Milwaukee to young people, to uh, businesses, to um, you know, essentially market itself as as the next hub of technology and progression. They're they're trying to turn Milwaukee because they think it will help the city as a whole if we have a bunch of businesses coming in here that are could be the next big thing or something like that. Um, they're trying to turn that Milwaukee into a market that is appealing for that. Mm-hmm. And I just I'm curious about what your thoughts are on that because I think it's 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 a very cool time to be in part of Milwaukee. I think Milwaukee is going to be very different in the next two to four years in a good way. That's not a lot of time. <laughs> that's like a, I mean, that but is it, a flash. But, but I know but that's how things. Yeah, I know, but that's, I mean, change like, takes a lot of time. Well, change takes a lot of time, but there's a lot of, change has been happening, and there's some real things that'll be done in two to four years, mm-hmm. because the Bucks Arena will be done in two years. So, startup, okay, it's like a tech startup, um, like software developing, app developing, uh, stuff like that. You don't need a lot of space. That can happen in a densely populated area, and it can spring up. That's something you can do. Um, office, but you're gonna take it's gonna take a certain skill set. Like that's not a an entry level person type job market. Um, in a densely populated area, you can have a lot of office buildings and off and you know office spaces, corporate jobs. So that's why it's important to be a corporate hub. So like for being a startup, if they start here, hopefully they stay here, and it becomes the like the corporate center of something that sprawls out and has tentacles all over the country. I get that. That makes sense. That takes a long time, but I mean, oh yeah, definitely. in order for Milwaukee to be strong forty years from now, you certainly need to be creating that environment where that those seeds get planted now. So I understand that. That makes sense. Um, but my issue is like the quickest way to create a lot of jobs that are more where you can take somebody without a lot of skills and teach them to do the job is going to be in a manufacturing, manufacturing plant. Yeah. And they don't succeed really well. Like, you can't put up... It's You can. It's really difficult to run a manufacturing plant while in a densely populated area. And I don't care. I'm not speaking about what particular neighborhood or type of people you're around. You need room. Yeah. You need square footage. Yeah. And when you're packed right into, a, like, in a neighborhood or whatnot, you're, it's going to limit your growth and your options and what you can do. So... You need air. You almost need more suburban environments, not because there's more middle class people around, but just because you need people around. But you need to be able to just like buy up five acres. But that is an advantage of Milwaukee is there is space out there. Yeah, you don't have to go very far in no. any direction. Well, we, we don't, don't go. I mean, besides the ridiculous <laughs> freaking construction that's been going on for God knows how long. Mm-hmm. Uh, North, very, south, or it, west. It's a very accessible city. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could be 20 miles out. I have to say, even the construction, I mean, I drive through it all the time. It's a little bit irritating. It's not that bad. Oh, compared to Chicago or some of these other yeah. cities? It, it's not it, it's, that bad. Yeah, that's a like, first world Milwaukee problem. Like that, It is not bad. The thing, that, the, the thing that's always annoyed me is that freaking uh, exit on Lakefront that has been under construction for like five years. And I don't understand how one of the biggest exits on your entry to your city is on, yeah, on 94. 
How is that under construction for five years? And I, I'm not even exaggerating. I think it's been five years now. Yeah. How do you how do you plan something like that and not like that's one of those things where like I understand it takes time and effort and stuff like that. That's a pretty big deal. I mean that that was a major exit. Like mm-hmm. coming into and introducing you to the city and all that stuff. But whatever. And that that leads into an argument where it's kind of like a Republican versus Republican fight over does it make sense to deficit spend and borrow money for infrastructure improvements? Because some Republicans are like, well, no, you shouldn't borrow money. And in general, you shouldn't. But like, if you're going to borrow money so you can just blow it, well, that's obviously a really bad idea. But if you're finishing a major infrastructure project that is important for economic activity to occur and finishing it is going to allow economic activity to return to its normal level and then continue to improve on its normal trajectory, your tax inflows in the future are going to increase enough to offset any bond payment. So just shit will get off the pot. Like yeah. if you're gonna start it, finish it. Yeah, you can't you can't half ass it. You gotta whole ass something like that. I mean we're not we're not just taking the money and watering it up and throwing it into Lake Michigan. Well, this is one I've actually always wanted to ask you. What do you what did you think about when Scott Walker vetoed that train, the one that was going to go from like Minneapolis to Chicago, obviously going through like Madison and Milwaukee. And starting between Madison and Milwaukee? Yeah. The, the cow speed rail? So you're not, not a fan of it? It was so stupid. Like, it was. You don't think a train going from connecting essentially four big cities in the Midwest? Because the, the idea was to go from Minneapolis to Chicago. You don't think that's a good idea? Wait, Amtrak loses money. Um. So it's just, it doesn't make sense. And like the kind of one thing that we were going to talk about is like the tram, but like in general, like, okay, when you're moving material, like massive amounts of heavy material over land, trains continue and will probably almost always be one of the most economical ways to do it. When you're talking about moving people, I just don't see how it makes any sense. Like, it's not... I have a hard time seeing a situation where I would ever want to use it. And even if I'm traveling across there often, um, what you have to charge for fare, you might as well just buy a car. If you're going to do it on that on that much of a regular basis, you might as well just buy a car. Um, it's not fast. It was never going to be fast. It was going to have to stop enough times that... You're, you know, you're quicker. It would be quicker just to drive over there. Are you talking about go- going from Milwaukee to Madison? Yeah. Well, and then you get dropped off the Dane County Airport. And then what do you do? Now you're just there. There's no way that that's where but you're that's, trying that's to go. That's where things like the freaking streetcar and stuff come into play, which is, I, I'm excited about the streetcar. I know you're not, but. Okay, let's get in the streetcar. What is, let's take a break first. Hold on. All right, so specifically, like we're getting back to Milwaukee, and we kind of um, gonna argue my streetcar logic. We're not streetcar logic. Okay, yeah. so what what is your case for the streetcar? Okay, uh, and I understand the argument against it. Uh, I think a lot of people are worried about construction. I think a lot of people are worried about if it's going to affect traffic. Obviously, there's the finances behind it, which if you look on their website, they they clearly line out how they're paying for it and it actually I think is, is pretty responsible um, it 
it's not it's not as much money as I think a lot of people would think. You know, the the train that we were talking about earlier from like Minneapolis to Chicago was like seven hundred million dollars or something like that. This is like twenty or forty million dollars or something like that. Uh, so it's not like an insane. It's amount. a lot more than that. I think it's twenty to forty for the original, and it's going to be probably about forty per edition. And they they are making they're already planning on doing editions. So I think you're. I think what you're talking about is after the federal funding. There's $65 million of federal funding. Oh, yeah. Well, I was talking about on the city. Yeah. yeah and then that's not counting. And then like, there's estimates that there could be, like, as much as $100 million in, like, utilities rerouting and, like, rebuilding other infrastructure that wouldn't otherwise have to get changed. Like... You're pulling apart stuff that is fine. It's not like it's stuff that's already broken, so who cares? Like, rebuild it anyway. Um, so there's there's large other soft costs that the city isn't going to pick up. And there's a big fight, over, like, for ratepayers. I, I should let you just make your case. I'm okay, sorry, I apologize. So I'm going to do a, a, a three-minute case <laughs> overview of it. And it involves the bucks and all that stuff, too. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make that... Basically, what I was saying, going back to like industry and stuff about how we're trying to market to younger, talented people about being a startup city and all that stuff. I think these are the type of things that define a city. Having a metro, having stuff like this separates us from a lot of cities. And I think in this day and age, you need to be able to have a reason why businesses would want to come there. Why you like, I think in this day and age, when company culture is a really big thing for a lot of companies uh they want to be in a cool city they like you need a reason to be able to attract talented people to come live in your city because quality of life is a huge interest it's a huge part of living for the most talented of people so with the milwaukee bucks stadium which i'm I'm anti a lot of crowdfunding stadiums which we can get into later but in this particular one because it's downtown and there's a lot of I think structured development around it meaning they're all working together for one overall goal I think they're trying to make Milwaukee a very cool fun city to live in and I think a metro is a huge part of that I think being able to be able to work and live downtown and not necessarily need a car uh, is is a huge advantage for you know whether the startups are coming downtown and all that stuff like you were talking about a lot of these businesses non manufacturing ones don't they they can be in dense areas mm-hmm. so a lot of business can come into a dense area meaning downtown and something like a, a streetcar allows that to happen and encourages growth and people coming in here um, Tom Barrett the Mandel Group. Uh, a bunch, I think it was like 20 people went down to Kansas City a couple months ago, which is the Milwaukee streetcar is essentially being based on the Kansas City streetcar because they, they got it in there. And apparently 20 out of 20, every single one of them came back hot and saying positive things, saying this is going to transform Milwaukee, it's going to change it, it's going to help our city, like really kind of, it's going to be one of the things that's going to define Milwaukee. And that's my argument about how you're talking about you know, 40 year growth. How do you make a city, uh, succeed down the line? You need to make investments like this at times. 
um, to encourage people coming to the city. That's my argument. Okay. It's my overall argument. <clears throat> okay. Uh, my argument against it is it's a lot of money for a cool factor. Um, you look at like a draw to different areas, Northeastern, uh, Illinois, like everything around Chicago. The biggest, coolest thing about that is the Chicago architecture. The buildings that we build around here, the new Northwestern Mutual building notwithstanding, are quite dreary and boxy and boring looking compared to the architecture for corporate headquarters like all over the place when you're driving around that area. So that's like, that's their big cool factor that draws people in and kind of gives some people some attachment uh, to their region. So <clears throat> kind of what you're making the case that it's going to spur a lot of other development after the fact. And just based on some other cities that have done it, that I've looked at, several, a few cities, one, one city, saw a massive amount of development investment right it. around Portland. Portland's the first one that did a new rail, a new um, trolley line in 2001. Um, and within three blocks of the original line, which was do, 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 2.7 miles in route length, saw $3.5 billion in development around it. And so a lot of other cities looked at that and thought, well, that must be why it happened. <clears throat> Over time, other cities have tried to develop one. Atlanta is another example. Um, Dallas, Salt Lake City, Tampa, uh, DC have tried to do the same thing and had the opposite result. And before I get into it, the, kind of the common theme was if the rest of the environment, of the rest of the economic environment was on the edge of a boom, then it happened. And if there was no boom in the future, a, a streetcar didn't make that happen. Um, talk about Kansas City specifically. The Kansas City line has a lot of parking. And if we just look at street parking within one block of their line, which is 2.7 miles, so that's about two and a half times longer than the route that Milwaukee is putting in. Has 12,000 parking spot on-street parking spots within one block of the line. That's not counting any on-street um, on spots on the line, on those same streets. And one thing from looking at the map, there are, in like kind of the meat, the meaty portion of it, there's a ton of parking lots close by. Also in the downtown area of um, Kansas City, only 20,000 people live there. So you have people that are going to, to play or work or whatever are using the streetcar because, well, A, it's free. They haven't started charging for it yet and they're not planning to. There's lots of parking, so it's easy to go there, park, get on the streetcar and then ride around in your little loop. So it's kind of, if there's ever a situation where it's gonna work, like everything else around it is already set up correctly. 
in Milwaukee, we don't have those situations. It's not really going by anything that's going to make sense. Like, it's really difficult to park close to there. And it's only 1.1 mile loop. Very, very, very small. So, and it's going to go average like 8 miles an hour or whatever. If you're going to park, if, if you're going to get to it, you got to somehow get there. So that's, you're going to drive. You're going to park. And then you got to walk over to this thing because you're not going to be able to park very close to it. And then, I, I guess my point is, what are you going to do with it? Well, okay, my first counter to that would, A, they've already talked about uh, expanding it because that's already an issue that they've addressed. Um, and this is why I was saying two to four years because they were saying, uh, according to the streetcar website, they're saying by 2020 they already have plans about expanding into the suburbs around Milwaukee, which is which is basically, if, if you're going to do a metro, you do have to do it right as far as you're right. You, like, if you're driving downtown to park downtown so you can get on a, a fucking streetcar to go downtown, that's pointless. It helps the people downtown because they might not need to drive to work or whatever, but that's not, a, that's not a good enough reason to do it besides the cool factor. So if they expand it out into, you know, if they go into West Dallas, they go into uh, Bayview, they go into these places where people can uh, continually, you know, move throughout Milwaukee easier... Um, I then I think it's beneficial. Also, I think when you talk about Portland, uh, when you talk about some some of the places that have succeeded versus some of the places that fail, I do hate the argument when people say, "Well, it worked here, it didn't work here," uh, and they're just kind of glossing over the fact of how different certain places are. This is like what I was saying in a couple podcasts ago, where. You know, people will say, well, you know, in in UK, the gun laws are this way. If they just did that in America, it would work. And it's like, no, that's not how... Culture's different. Culture's yeah. different. Populations are different. City layout's different. Mm-hmm. I mean, Milwaukee is a fairly... It's it, it's a kind of unique city. Obviously, you got the you got the lake on the east. you got... It's a pretty condensed downtown. I mean, Dallas is a very... Dallas and Atlanta, you're talking about how that may not work. Dallas and Atlanta and, and Tampa are very spread out cities. I mean, they're very geographically large cities. Mm-hmm. Um, Milwaukee is fairly condensed. So streetcars will, well, I, I think the streetcar will help a lot of people because it's so condensed. Um, well, how's it going to help them? I mean, you made a case for the cool factor. Yeah. But like, I, I think helping them, how is it going to help them? Because I think there is value in mobility. There's value in people being able to move without a car. I think there's people, or travel throughout the city without a car. I understand that the original loop is going to be fairly small. The cool factor thing, I know that's, it's very easy to say that cool factor is not a good economic or financial reason to do it, but... I do believe that it's going to be a it's going to be a cog in helping move a lot of business to Milwaukee. I mean, uh, Royal Enfield, which is an international motorcycle company, is moving into the third ward. Uh, they're going to be competing with Harley as a motorcycle company. There is businesses coming into Milwaukee over the next two to six years that like have already. There's been a shitload of, uh, of breweries that have been announced. There's been a lot of different types of jobs that have already been announced and a lot of them are, are, are 
buying places on the rail lines. I mean, they're like literally taking that into account. Um, this kind of goes back into, I'd be curious, and I don't know the answer to this, you know, some of these places that said, oh, well, Portland did it, we can do it. Well, I'd be curious to know how they spent their money. I'd be curious to see if there was proper oversight. This is why I'm confident in Milwaukee because of play, the organizations like the GMC and uh, the uh, some of the development groups and the, the startup Milwaukee, they seem to be working together um, for to, to make it actually functional and not just like, oh, we have 12 projects going on in the city, but they're not there's not some sort of unis, you know, uniform communication between them. Um, a lot of places I, I get frustrated when they're paying for the, the stadiums. Uh, but the Bucks thing, I mean, it's right downtown. I feel like they're redoing downtown. And I understand the argument that, you know, you watch the videos and of the promo videos of why, when they were trying to sell the Bucks thing to the public and they're just like, showing this pulse going out for the rest of the city. And I think that's probably a little bit overstated. It was a little dramatic. It was, it was very melodramatic. It was really dramatic. But I mean, there are case studies where that's not, like the Lakers, when they got their new, LA, downtown LA used to not be a great place to go. And when they redid uh, the Lakers stadium. Staples Center. The Staples Center. Downtown LA has completely been transformed. It's a very nice place to go now. And a lot of people attribute that to the Staples Center. That was the that was the the you know beginning of it all. There's a lot of development that came down under that. I mean, there's a lot of areas. Bayview's become so much nicer in the last 10, 15, 20 years. West Allis, I think, is on the rise. I mean, there's Mandel Group, which is the biggest developer in Milwaukee, is putting in sixty-five million dollar development in West Allis around the farmers market and stuff like that. They don't do that unless they think that it's a growth. Like, they're the biggest developers in Milwaukee. They don't gamble. They have reason to suspect these things. There's money being put in Milwaukee with businesses and companies coming here. And I just feel like, obviously, a lot of things can happen. Economic downturns can happen. But I'm, if I was betting on the growth happening, I think the streetcar is a cog of this stuff happening. That's my, that's, I, I'm just saying if, if there's a way to lay money on this, I would be in a buyer mode. Okay. Um, so I guess I'm a little more, a little more bearish, <laughs> shall we say, yeah. on the ability of Milwaukee leadership to manage anything. Um, <clears throat> And saying the bearishness, that's certainly not a pun on anyone's name. Um, I looked, there's just the historical progression of it. Portland did it, and they had a major boom around it, and everyone assumed that it was because of the cool factor added by, this, by that, tr that street, that line. And later on, after the fact, um, like one study, the purpose and function, the purpose, function, and performance of streetcar transit in the modern U.S. city, followed the boom was spurred largely by other factors. Uh, Minneapolis is currently in the process of setting up their own line, and their own, the Minneapolis Metropolitan Council was trying to quantify the incentives to development that this is going to create, and found that they're 
elusive and debatable was the words that they used. Like, they couldn't figure out... I mean, it was going to add a cool factor. They couldn't figure out what that really meant or why it would actually draw someone. Um, so some other cities that have duplicated Portland's development that we listed out have failed. Um, and the main reason for, like, the main the conservative argument against it is that it's poorer at transporting people than buses, and it's many times more expensive. The New York Times, looking at all these different cities, I had an article that the streetcar revival is wavering. Urbanful is another website that our, I had an article asking the question, are streetcars a fad or the future? Nextcity.org admitted that why streetcars aren't really about transit at all. Even the Guardian, the Brits are looking at it and kind of scratching their heads and asking street, like, why are American cities obsessed with building trams? And these aren't conservative think tanks. Uh, the, the particular Milwaukee, uh, Atlanta example is a two point. That's a, also a two point seven mile loop. It costs ninety eight million dollars to initially set up. It goes by Georgia State University. That's in a place where there's no snow or ice to contend with. Um, in Q one of twenty fifteen, it was free to ride. They had about one hundred eighty five thousand riders in that time period. The same time period this year, when they just raised the fare to a buck. Uh, they had 91,000 riders in that same time period. So literally, when I talk about the convenience of moving, it's not worth more than half the people, more than half the people are using it, it's not even worth a dollar to get on it. Like if they have to pay anything, they'd rather do something else. Um, and kind of anecdotal reports and anecdotal evidence is the worst kind of evidence that there is that it basically just ends up being homeless people riding around forever, heckling people, other people that actually want to get on it. Uh, the Kansas City example specifically, I talked about there's a lot of parking close to it, and so it's, it's easy to use for people from the whole area. And if you want to drive ridership, it needs to be easy for a lot of people to use. And we're not going to be in that situation. It's yeah, that, very difficult for people to use. That's definitely one of the things that does concern me about it is, is that... And all the areas are supposed to, like, the next three legs of expansion, none of those are in areas where it's easy to park either. Just how do you get to it? Well, what do you mean? Because in the map, it, or on the, on the proposed routes, it goes into suburban areas. Parking in a lot of those suburban areas is fairly simple. And a lot of those places you won't need to park anywhere. You can just literally walk to it or something like that. Uh, the maps that I've looked at have three spurs coming off. One goes uh, west past the, past the stadium, through the stadium district. One goes north up along Brady Street. And then one goes south down past uh, Rockwell Automation and then back up. Have you looked at the ones that are expanding into the, the suburbs? And how much of that cost? Yeah, I mean, point. you have to speak to my point that it's less effective and slower than buses, and it costs a lot more. I'm if you not... want to transport people, you can make a bus that looks like a streetcar. Okay. If that's what you want to do. I mean, it's not about transportation. I just, when you say, when you talk about Portland, when you're saying, like, well, they thought it was because of the cool factor, and then this one study said it wasn't. 
why can't it be a mixture of a bunch of things? Like, I'm sure that was obviously part of it. They need more. Now we have more case studies to compare it to. Okay, but again, I, I, I would be curious to see the the leadership. And I, I'm not saying Milwaukee has great leadership. I'm just saying, having met with some of these organizations that are like the Milwaukee's of the world, the GMC and stuff. They seem to be working together in a way that impresses me. I mean, Milwaukee is a very active community. Like when you come, especially in like the summer, spring, and fall of Milwaukee, downtown Milwaukee is one of the most impressive cities I've ever seen. It's a freaking, if not one, if not three festivals every weekend. There's besides Summerfest, there's, you know, something every night of the week, uh, uh, whether it's jazz in the park or fish frying a flick or river, river rhythms or the Shakespeare on the hill, chill on the hill type thing. Like there's different community stuff every single night. There is a sense of activity in Milwaukee that just impresses me. And I know none of this comes back to finances. And I understand that that is probably the bottom line always is the biggest deal. And I'm not saying it's going to be a good money maker. Obviously some of these places aren't meant to be money makers because it's, you know, they're running for free or whatever. But I do think that this is what transforms a city into, it takes a city to the next level. I think it will incur, whether it's right or wrong, I think it will bring and it already is bringing in business. Um, I think there'll be some hiccups the first couple of years, but I think that happens with anything. And I just feel like, yeah, it might, it might not be off to a dynamite start where it's like, you know, people being able to transport around or whatever. But I think when they add some extensions, when they figure, when they figure out the kinks in it, I just think it's one of those things. Like I, I did an abroad in, in uh, Stuttgart, Germany, and they had a fucking Metro and it was awesome. Like, I can't tell you how awesome it is to have, and granted, obviously theirs was bigger, but their their city is about the size of Madison. It's about two hundred thousand people, and they had a very basic metro network, where they were very good at implementing on where the you know locations were for pickups and drop offs and stuff like that. But I can't tell you how convenient it is to be able to just walk half a mile to a stop, get on the metro go in like not have to work with not have to worry about parking not have to worry about fucking gas not have to worry about any of this shit being able to do stuff when you're going to work like it was honestly like when i was when i was in stuttgart it was about a 20 minute 25 minute uh travel from the house i was staying in to the class i was going to and which is you know right now i drive to work and i probably takes about 10 15 minutes I enjoyed going, I would rather have a, a half an hour, I would rather have a 45 minute commute where I could read or fucking do shit than a 20 minute one where I'm driving and not being able to do shit. I'm just saying like, I may not make, be making the best financial argument on this, but I just feel like the cool factor, while it's easy to dismay that, I don't think it's not something. <clears throat> so like those things that you're assigning value to all of those things could be accomplished with a bus 
You can get a fancier looking bus. It can look like a streetcar. It can do all those things. It may not have the same mystique, but that's it doesn't have the it factor. <laughs> that's only a value that you you choose to assign. So you're, to you're it. chalking this up to kind of like the uh, the monorail episode of The Simpsons. <laughs> Um, in 2007, I went to a Brewers game up in uh, the Metrodome. Uh, it was the game where um, Prince Fielder hit his first of two in the Parker home runs. So he just hit it really high, and Lou Ford was out there in the outfield, and in their stupid stadium, the roof was the same color as the ball. What? Where did you say this was? Metrodome. Okay. And he lost it. In the sky, or you know, in the sky, he lost it against the, the, the their stupid dome, and the ball landed thirty feet away from him. And Prince Field was booking around the bases, and he got an in the Parker home run. I remember because when I went to that game at a park over by the Mall of America, so I go out and buy a ticket, and it was like eight bucks or whatever for a round trip ticket. So I feed in twenty bucks, and it gives me. 12 Sacagawea dollars. It's the only change that I can get. It's not going to, it won't do anything else. It just throws 10 Sacagaweas at me. I'm like, I don't want this shit. I'm like, really? This is, this is our only option? So then we get on this thing. It's crowded. So I'm irritated. Then we ride. We get off. We watch the game. And it's, the Metrodome sucks. But that was a different issue. And then we get out. And so there's about 30 to 40,000 people leaving the stadium. And the light, and this is light rail. So it's up off the ground and isn't obstructing traffic like like these will. <clears throat> Light rail's down. So 40,000 people, we're just all there, standing in a big mob with our thumbs up our butts. And it was at that moment where I'm like, no, this is why government planning in general, the best laid plans generally go to shit because it's stuff like this that you can't account for. Um, in business, when, it, when we look at manufacturing anything else, the big push that everyone would wants is flexibility. Like if you're looking at a manufacturing system, you want flexibility such that you can handle, like you're designing around handling a certain throughput of a particular part, but that's not a guaranteed forever contract. You need flexibility so that you can redeploy it in other ways as easily as possible and you can maximize the value in different situations that you can't foresee. Certainly, the, develop, the future development of a city is a variable that you can't foresee. Um, we look at buildings. You want buildings that if you need to utilize them in a different way, you want one that's, that its layout is flexible such that you can use it for this now and if you need to use it differently in the future that you're able to. Um, and when vehicles, when it comes to moving goods, like you need flexibility, like it's not attractive for businesses to be stuck in one mode forever and to invest a huge amount of money in something that is stuck being that one thing in that one way. So when the rest of the world is moving towards flexibility, why is government and these different cities and now Milwaukee, why should we go the opposite direction and embrace rigidity when there's minimal utility for it and it's going to cost dramatically more than our alternatives that are flexible? Well, I, I think that the, the goal, you're saying like everything is rigid and not inflexible. I think the goal of what the government here is trying to do is to lay a infrastructure to promote flexibility within it, meaning 
look, we're going to have the basics done for you. And it's going to like, that's appealing to a lot of businesses. So if you come to this city, instead of going to an alternative city, <clears throat> we have a like, we are offering a great deal and a great amount of things as a city for your business. It's a, it's a, it's all like the name of the game for me, in my opinion, is attracting some of these businesses. Like, what is it? What do we have to offer instead of them going to alternative cities, instead of them going uh, abroad or whatever? Like, it's it's about attracting businesses to your city, and I think these are the type of things that are there's there's sales pieces in it. I mean, uh, there's a lot of places that have fucked up, you know, getting greedy with like whether it's you talk about uh, the film industry in California or something like that. You know, that was the the, obviously Hollywood was the quintessential film place of the world or whatever and they raised the taxes on it because they just thought oh there will always be the film industry here now there's places you know Toronto and, and, and Pittsburgh there's a lot of places that really promote filming there and they've just exodused uh, California because the taxes aren't as high so they vote with their feet yeah they vote exactly <clears throat> And that's the type of thing where it's about attracting business and stuff like this. When you're laying down the infrastructure of a city, I think city planning is just such a huge part of attraction for it. And Milwaukee's trying to be a cutting edge. They're not saying these businesses have to come here. They're not saying it needs to be this way. It's not saying what it has to be. They're just saying... We believe this is a good infrastructure. We believe this is a good foundation for businesses to thrive. So if government planning is so critical, or city planning, and if you're trying to pack a lot of businesses into a small area, it absolutely is, then those businesses need to see value. And when people are looking for a place to go hang out or visit or tour, like the cool factor is a big deal. But businesses want to see value. And when they see a city locking in a huge cost, which is going to be a major driver for property taxes in the future, and we look at Portland, Kansas City, every other city. I shouldn't say that. Portland and Kansas City, for sure, as far as I research, have a higher tax, um, a higher tax burden on the areas within three blocks of the streetcars because of there's the perceived cool factor. So you're logging in a much larger cost for something that isn't going to provide any kind of useful utility that a bus, a much cheaper bus couldn't provide. And then they're going to have to be locked into a much higher tax rate than they would have otherwise. Um, so if you talk about we need good planning, it makes me question how good the planning is of any city to put in a streetcar. And if the, the success of a streetcar is so dependent on the planning being good, I have to wonder if city planners are stupid enough to plan a streetcar in the first place, why should we believe that they're smart enough then to make it work when so many others have failed? Uh, that's a, again, that comes back to me saying it's a case-by-case. Case. I understand what you're saying. I, just, I, I think that's such a case-by-case case thing. I don't, I don't have trust in a lot of these other cases that you keep referring to. And I'm not even saying I'm right about Milwaukee. Um, well, DC is the biggest example of mismanagement. I mean, that one has been an, an amazing debacle. Yeah, I mean, I don't 
don't know enough about it to, to comment. I mean, I know how much of a economic shit show DC's in, which is a shame because there's so much go, there's so much to offer in DC. I love DC. I've been to DC a couple of times. Absolutely mm-hmm. love DC. But it, yeah, they have a, they have a lot of problems. And it, well, one of the biggest. I don't. I I, I love DC. Uh, but I know that there is serious, serious problems with that. That's that's a different city, though. Again, it's a transplant city. I mean, I don't know. I I just I when you say value, when you say what's the value to a business, I I would like come. utility. Like you want maximum flexibility for minimum cost and something that's going to actually like. And this is a transportation thing. You want to be able to move people. It's well, a poorer way to move people and it's more expensive and it's totally locked in. And it's locking into a cost structure that's going to be higher than any alternative that you have. Why would a business be dumb enough to go towards a streetcar just because of the streetcar? Well, again, though, I mean, uh, 20 out of 20 people that went to Kansas City and viewed their streetcar thought that it was a improvement for the city. They thought it was a they came back with the understanding that they thought this was a great improvement to the city of Kansas City. So these are the people that are spending money. These are the people that are planning stuff out. These are the people that are making these investments. They went there, saw a tangible thing, and I, I understand that you, you could say some of the data shows it the other way. I've seen data supporting the Kansas City one plenty, and granted a lot of that was off the you know proposals and stuff for the Milwaukee streetcar, but 20 out of 20 people that went to Kansas City and rode the streetcar for a week and walked around and saw it said, this is a great addition to a city. To that city. To that city. Which again, and I know particulars that are built in. Yeah. and, and I, I Which and we I, don't have. I understand all of the things you just referenced about the parking and all that. I'm saying that they are they are counting they're betting on they're they're voting with their money that they can figure out a way to make this work and i'm not sitting here saying it's going to work i'm just saying that i understand the appeal of it i understand the reasons behind it and i'm personally optimistic towards it now who knows in 2018 uh, or 2020 or whatever when what is it supposed to get started? Like, actually be open for business? They, they've already broken ground for it. They're saying, uh, I think it's 2018 is when it's supposed to be uh, up and running. Okay. Um, when we're on episode 450 of this podcast in 2080, <laughs> you know, we got millions of followers. Uh, maybe I'll sit down here and admit my, my wrongdoing, but... My personal opinion is I'm optimistic of a lot of what is going on in Milwaukee. I think the streetcar is not not even going to be close to the the centerpiece of what's happening in Milwaukee. I just think it's a cog. I think Milwaukee's a very active city and it's not you can have buses, you can have like I just think the more tra- metro transportation the better. You can have the streetcars plus the buses plus you know bubbler those little bikes that are down there like uh freaking rickshaws i don't care i just think metro public transportation in cities is a good thing the well, more of it the better a trolley doesn't what does it do that a bus doesn't do i'm not even saying it does anything different it's just an, it's another option no i mean it does things different i'm saying what does it do that a bus doesn't do 
I'm not saying it does anything. Nothing, wrong. right? Yeah. What can a bus do that a trolley can't do? Go elsewhere off the track. Go somewhere else. Yeah. And there's a reason why. Well, trolleys used to be very common, and we abandoned them, and there was a reason for it. Why should we go backwards? I mean, what area other than government is dumb enough to do that? I shouldn't let that. Okay. Okay. Use language that's not so loaded. I mean, who, there's there's who a, else would do that on purpose? I mean, there is the argument of sometimes an idea is flawed, and if you rehash it or do it differently, it, the idea wasn't bad; it just was executed poorly. Well, it was a good idea given the alternatives at the time. I'm I'm just saying it's it's. You could say it's going backwards. Sometimes we did things in the past that were, we didn't do them the correct way. They're saying we're, they're believing that this can be done in a good way, in a correct way. And who knows, maybe it won't be, but their argument, their, their goal is to do it the correct way. There is places that support that. There's places that go against it. Okay. I uh, think I understand what you're saying. I think I've made all my points. I think we're gonna we're gonna call it for today. We're coming up on an hour and forty five minutes, so I think it's been another enjoyable podcast, Ben. As always, uh, be sure to follow us on SoundCloud or on iTunes, or if you use Podcast Republic, look us up on there. Otherwise, have a great week.